Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Zara. I have graduated from psychology last year, and now I'm doing an internship within the Health and Wellbeing Project Office. So today we'll be hosting Chloe um, to talk about um, sex education. So if you would like to introduce yourself um, and tell us about yourself a little bit, um, Chloe. All right. Hi, uh, my name is Chloe Resch. I am an international student myself uh, doing research at the doctoral level at Nottingham Trent University on the sexual and reproductive health of international students and their gaps. Um, before that, I had worked in sexual and reproductive health um, education in this country, RSC or sexualities education um, for just over a decade. Um, and I did that ac across three countries mostly working with young folks, um, but generally just educating on sexual and reproductive health. Um, and I wanted to study that more closely. I know our, our areas overlap, so it's really great to to meet with you and chat with you and, and see what we can share and explore today. So, yeah. Yeah, great. It seems like a really interesting area. Um, so for many students at university in their first time being independent, it may be the first time that many students uh, properly explore sex and relationships. So Prissy University survey found like around 36% of students had arrived at the University of Bristol as a virgin and 51% were in monogamous relationship with one partner. So it's a such exciting time for students. What advice would you give to new university students and someone who's still exploring their sexual habits? Mm. Yeah, I think exciting is a really great word to describe it. Um, it does feel so new when you step on campus and it's it's fresh and there's a, this feeling of potential, isn't there? So um, what I think people can do when they walk onto campus um, in regards to their sexuality is ask themselves a couple very simple questions and that's, um, what do I want? What are my goals? Um, and these are things that you get to ask yourself when you're taking your life into your hands for the first time career-wise social-wise, you're out usually of the house um, and then sometimes not, which is also very smart <laughs> financial move for those of us. Um, but um, I would ask myself, what are my goals for myself in general and also in terms of in sexual health? So I do this, I do say this also to high schoolers is, um, what are your values? Um, Am I super pro-choice? Before I get into a relationship with somebody or before I have sex with somebody, if I know those things about myself, um, then I'm able to find things that feel suitable to me. So I'd ask myself those questions before you even become sexually active, you know, at any age, is um, what do I value? What feels good for me? Um, what is acceptable to me and what's not acceptable to me? Um, what are my limits? Those things, uh, figuring them out for yourself is really important. And, I, and just before this call, we were having a little chat, a little banter, and talking about the concept of masturbation. And this can be so empowering for people to understand pleasure. Yeah, what feels good to my body? I think you'll find a lot more rewarding relationships and sexual experiences if you kind of sort out, what do I want? How do my uh, <clears throat> actions and behavior get me towards that? And um, what feels good to me. I think that that leads to a lot more rewarding uh, interactions. Yeah, that's that seems good. Yeah, to have set up some goals and what you really wanted. Um, so sex education in schools seems um, to not educated young people enough. 
So why do you think this is? Young people have so many questions that do not seem to be answered regarding sex and the in internet is sometimes um, not that best place to look at. And what should we do be doing more um, to help and, and give more you know, advice and help for, for young people about sex? Yeah, well, definitely. So the other half of the coin, too, is not just um, what do I know about myself, but also what do I know objectively about sex? Like what what is an STI and how do I prevent myself from getting one? That is absolutely the other the other half here. So having that sort of education um, around what is sex, unfortunately, is um, well known to be quite lacking in schools, especially for this generation coming up. Um, they've seen a lot of transition in terms of what's made minimally statutorily available to them in terms of reproductive and sexual education or sexualities education. Um, only just in recently has it been made mandatory. It was set for 2019 that all high schools should have RSC. Um, then that was pushed to 2020 and then there was COVID. So it's going to be patchy. So mm -hmm. don't blame yourselves if you don't know. I'm always learning stuff as well. And like I said, I've been in this for a decade. Um, so it's okay to consult the internet and actually MTU is doing a really remarkable job of providing sexual and reproductive health, um, not only education, but also resources that are available to students. So you can look um, locally on the websites, on MTU website, you can consult your health services. And actually in November this year, there are going to be RSC sort of catch up sessions. Actually. Um, that I think your departments are, are involved in. So um, maybe Paul can tell us a bit about those. Um, but just background wise, mm. um, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's actually totally woefully ina uh, inadequate. My, yeah. yeah, my supervisor, Pam Aldred actually, uh, brilliant, she's NTU prof. Her research area is, is particularly about sex education in schools mm -hmm. and why it could be inaccurate. And, and to school's credit, they have a lot <laughs> to do. Um, most people don't want to teach sex education. And as a sex educator, I kind of get why it can be. It can be kind of a crazy experience to stand in front of however many teenagers and say gonorrhea and chlamydia, and especially if you have an accent like me, say <laughs> sometimes say it quote unquote wrong. Um, it can be such a funny experience. Um, so, and, and there's so much that's expected of them. They teach such long hours and it's not their specialty. So a lot of times we can, they can look at people as students, um, you know, as someone you teach math to, you don't really think of them as a sexual being. So it can be a weird shift for teachers to have to get into that role and one that, you know, not everyone's particularly excited about. Um, so it gets relegated to about an hour a year and then they bring in external people like myself, which I believe is a good thing. And actually Pam's research demonstrates is a good thing because we're able to see them as a sexual being instead of a kid or a, you know, um, it's, it's hard if you're a teacher and, and, and you have a position of power to look at someone who's a sexual being and mm -hmm. to honor that and, and respect that. For us, not so much, because that's what we do all day. Um, but yeah, so, so there can be gaps. And then by the time you get to university, there's this uh, massive amount of potential. And age-wise, it just more people are, are starting to pair up or triple up or however up, <laughs> however exciting your social life tends to be. Um, but uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. People come in with not as much knowledge as they like and they are seeking that next bit of information. I do think NTU is doing a great job. Paul, um, 
your sessions in November, do you want to say a bit about what they are and what's coming up? So we've, we've linked with Victoria Health Centre, so their um, NHS sexual health service. Mm -hmm. So they'll be coming onto campus and they'll be delivering three workshops. So the three workshops that are going to be running is, it's going to be one on healthy relationships, one on sexually transmitted infections, one on attitudes and values, and another one on signposting and services. So hopefully it should kind of, the workshop should be really good for in, for students to get information around sex and and they're going to be run on teams because we think it'll be more effective on teams so it, hopefully it provides students with um, all the resources and information that they need nice. and, right? oh, yeah and right. um yeah, yeah. I, i'll just say having talked to this department i'm also fully confident i should just say for students who might be listening is uh these aren't your math teachers from high school. These are people who uh, hand out condoms all the time. This is this is part of their job and they're not bashful. So you don't have to feel bashful either. This is um, yeah, this is this is quite routine and, and people are expecting it in college. I will say just one last little difference, too, is that you go from spending um, having mass amounts of just school day time and very little social time in high school to now in college you have the class times are reduced, you might go to two lectures a day, and, and the, the focus on your social life and your health becomes um, becomes greater. So the resources that are available to you and that are, are present for you um, have become bigger. So hopefully throughout this, we could also kind of touch on those and hope to bring some of those up. And thanks, Paul, for, for yeah. jumping in and letting us know what's going on in November. Yeah, yeah that's good, yeah. So, so when it comes to STI testing, 16 to 25 years old continue to have the highest diagnosis rate of STI. Mm -hmm. So any age group, according to the recent survey, 15% of under 25 have admitted to having unsafe sex with two or more partners since arriving at the uni university. So why do you think this is? I am not sure of the gender differences to this. Do you think there is a stigma to getting tested? Yeah, so young women actually do end up getting tested at higher rates. Um, for whatever reason, I guess it, it's less popular potentially for young men or maybe they feel bashful in a different way. There's also uh, the fact that STIs tend to not be uh, symptomatic in men. They're symptomatic in men at a much lower rate, so they might have an STI and not realize it. It may not be physical, and and, and really um, across genders, only about fifty percent or eighty-five percent, I'm sorry, of STIs end up being asymptomatic. So you may not be able to rely on your body anyway. Um, and if you do, you might be a gal. Unfortunately, we get the tough end of the stick on a couple things with sexual and reproductive health. And that's one of them. So uh, yeah, I think there is there can be a bit of stigma. Absolutely. It can also feel like in the middle of your uh, college day, you've got a lot to do. Am I going to go check out a new uh, sexual health clinic? Am I, how, how long am I going to spend there? Sometimes these unknowns kind of feel preventative to us. But yeah, there can be a stigma. And um, STI testing tends to be, uh, yeah, most highly diagnosed in this age group, 16 to 25, but also ha happens to be one of the most highly underdiagnosed in this age group. So the rates of STIs um, 
are increased because people aren't getting tested. They, it feels like an obstacle. Yeah. Um, yeah. Then there was another half of your question, wasn't there? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just about the stigma um, um, that is related, um, as you said as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, we can, we can all think and I know I was born potentially uh, potentially a lot earlier and potentially a lot later than some students. Um, but I know when I was coming up, there were a lot of you know negative things you could think about STIs. Uh, roughly 50% of under 25s actually end up getting an STI, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. So it it's a lot more common than we think. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason why it's proliferates so much or, or, or happens is because people don't end up getting tested as they should. Um, the stigma, if that remains a barrier for you, you know, if we can't get past that, okay. Mm -hmm. On a pragmatic level, there are ways around going into clinic. There are testing kits that you can order through something called SH24. And I was just looking at it recently and they've actually expanded their program of things that they offer. They also offer um, topical medication for warts. They offer the morning after pill, which uh, despite the name, actually the morning after pill, you can take three to five days after unprotected sex for contraception. Um, there are a number of, of ways you can do that. That can be a pill um, or you could even go into clinic and be fitted with um, what's called a coil. So the mm -hmm. copper coil um, yeah. can be used. Um, but yeah, so we think of, of sexualities sometimes if we've come from a very, I don't know, closed off or conservative background as being scary or associated with a certain type of thing. But actually, um, it, it, gets, it gets statistically more and more common the older you get. So and, and you may be married in, in college as well um, and feel like there are sexual and reproductive health services that you need to access. So no matter who you are, you can do it privately as you want or or go to clinic. Um, there's a lot of options that suit different people. Yeah, there seems a lot of options where you can get tested. Um, so what do you think are the main reasons why students do not use protections? Are there any reasons to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say kind of as we mentioned earlier, there's, there's a little lack of knowledge. Um, when you come to university, it's you might be wondering what your resources are. Um, as you said, stigma. I think a lot of people feel like, ooh, if I carry condoms with me, well, people think I'm that kind of guy or that kind of girl, whatever that means. And it's funny, it's very funny. When I was um, first being trained to be a sexual and reproductive health educator, we talked a lot about Dutch students. And boy, are they smart. They are very smart. They did a little street survey asking young people, what would you think if you went on a date with someone and they had condoms? And these Dutch students were like, well, yeah, it's very smart. I think he thinks ahead or she thinks ahead. And they asked American and UK students who were like, wow, why, <laughs> why would they have that? You know what? They think I'm that ready. Da, 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 da. Um, and our kind of expectations around why would someone have this very mm. useful and almost, you know, must have um, health implement, it got a little warped, you know? I think we should start to look at it as, um, you know, how you have a uh, night nurse or for us Americans, NyQuil in your medicine cabinet, your paracetamol or your Advil, however you want to go about it. It's another health tool that, mm -hmm. um, especially if you plan on being sexually active sometime in your life, it makes sense to have uh, some tools. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Yeah, but we get we do we get a little bit wrapped up around um, what does it say about someone? Well, to me, it says, "Boy, you're smart," <laughs> and I would give that person a high five. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's exactly about what you expect. Yeah. So, yeah, good to mention, like, uh, there is a C card at this point. So what other forms of contraception is there to be protected for, for students? Yeah. So to say a little bit more quickly about the C card, um, that is a uh, almost like a subscription card, if you think about it. I mean, you can keep it in your wallet or you can even just take note of what your C card number is. And you can go to any outlet supplier. Um, that's a, a couple of pharmacies on campus. It can be clinics. Actually, um, Paul, if you know what some of the C card outlets are, be happy to hear if you know some specific ones. Um, we try and make it as easy as possible for students to sign up. So you can go to the um, NTU Health Centre and, and sign up. Um, and then pharmacists, they they usually um, do, do see cards. So it's a national programme and it, it's free to sign up. So once you've signed up, it's for people aged, um, I think it's 13 up to the age of 24. And so up to your 25th birthday. So that's I mean that's the real cost saving in terms of how much condoms cost. So, um, so yeah, you get lube as well. But yeah, just check your pharmacist. But the easiest way is to go to the health centres on campus and yeah. to get the C card. So once you've signed up, you can keep going back every week. I think you get um, six a week, six condoms a week. So if you are that active, then you can you can get replenished with your condoms, which is, which is good. It's a good scheme. Mm. It's a great scheme. I don't know if you've ever tried to buy uh, audience out there, not Paul, <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever tried to buy condoms at the grocery store. But yeah, they actually are really expensive. Six condoms, like 12 pounds, um, you know, not made out of money here. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Very expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So it can save a lot of save a lot of cost. Yeah. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, Zara, we're working with international students a lot. And so You've noticed potentially in your research, right, that not, international students might not know that sexual and reproductive health, along with, you know, all health, is free at the point of care. Have you found that as well? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, there is a lot of service. Yeah, it just about, as you said, about lack of awareness and, you know, um, it's not there. I think if, if they just get more educated about it and how to access to the service, because there is a lot of free service for sexual health as well. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but you don't need an NHS number in order to act, um, access sexual and reproductive health. You can make an appointment for all types of contraception, which I can I can tell you about now, which you did ask me. So fair yeah. enough. Why don't I get to that answer? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically, uh, some some options can be you can dial them up dial them down like for example the daily pill um, you do have to take routinely but if for example you decide you know what this isn't for me this particular pill isn't for me or this delivery mechanism doesn't suit me so much um, a lot of times the pill is a, a good place for people to start obviously talk to your doctor for their recommendations based on your um, health history etc but that, that's oftentimes a good place for people to start because you can just as easily be like today it uh, I've decided I will not be taking this from now on um, same thing with condoms um, <laughs> you do have to use them routinely right of course but um, they give you the option of, of deciding 
whether or not they work for you. And there are some methods. They're called LARCs, L-A-R-C's, long-acting reversible contraception. And those work um, typically hormonally um, by releasing uh, a combination of, or singularly, progesterone and estrogen. And what they do is they uh, work in the following three ways. And so if we were in person, you'd see me holding up three fingers. <laughs> um, this is the well-seasoned presenter that I am. <laughs> I've got I've got it down. So the, the ways that those work are that they prevent you from le- releasing an egg, right? So they prevent you from ovulating. The egg that might otherwise be fertilized doesn't get released. Mm. It also thickens cervical mucus. And that sounds like, what in the world is that? That's <laughs> your cervix is the opening to the womb where sperm might get in. Mm. Um, but instead, what it does, it, it creates a barrier, a natural barrier. And then also the third way is that it thins out the lining of the uterus. So even should a sperm get in through the cervical mucus, should it meet with an egg that shouldn't statistically have been there, it will prevent it from uh, implanting into the wall of the womb, which is scientifically the start of a pregnancy. Mm. So these methods that uh, are longer acting, they can be something called the implanon, which goes into your arm, Mm. uh, implanted by a doctor. And that releases those hormones and keeps that effect going uh, for a number of years. I want to say five years. Um, mm. Similarly, there's also um, there's also IUDs and IUSs. An IUS works hormonally. Mm. It's a T-shaped bar. Let's say it's roughly the size of a two-pound coin. Um, and that's inserted, again, by a doctor at a doctor's visit. Um, An IUD is the same thing with copper. If you feel like, based on your health history and having discussed it with a doctor, you don't want to take hormones, you can use the coil. Um, Sometimes people notice heavier periods, so it's not necessarily for everyone. Um, But then again, not all methods are for everyone anyway, so it can be about having a conversation with your doctor and finding what makes sense with your lifestyle. Um, There are a number of others, like spermicidal lubes, caps, with various um, like lifetimes to them. Uh, the, there's also NuvaRing, which is this thing that looks like a hair bobble that you can just basically knot up and put at the top of your vagina, and then you only have to change it once a week. Um, you can have sex with it in. It doesn't feel like anything. And so these kind of, you know, based on your lifestyle, how much you might forget to take a pill, I'm just not very, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm a very forgetful person. So yeah. remembering to do something the exact minute every day wouldn't be really practical for me personally. Um, but uh, it, it, can, it can be based on the person. That, that can be another thing. If you've tried one and you're like, oh man, I'm not sure uh, if birth control makes a lot of sense for me. Mm. Maybe there's another one out there. And then just to talk with your doctor can be really, can be really helpful. Um, mm. Let's see. Yeah. So those IUDs and IUSs, those last for a number of years, those last um, five to seven years for the IUS, which is the hormonal one, and, and sometimes up to seven to 10 years for the IUD, the copper one. Lots of options out there and you can get those um, placed by a doctor absolutely free at the point of care and they'll be happy to see you. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there is a lot of methods to protect yourself out there, um, which is good. So what advice, I mean, properly mentioned that, what advice would you give to help students to be more conscious about their sexual health? Conscious of their sexual health. Yeah, well, I, I think like we said, you know, um, being aware of, of what you want, um, being aware of 
what your options are out there. Again, you can find these on the website through NTU's um, Health and Wellbeing Services. So um, awareness can also be like how you communicate with your partner. And having those conversations are, is really important, making sure that you're listening for signs of consent. Yeah. Um, is that person comfortable reading their signs? And if there's any sign that even if someone is saying, yeah, let's have sex. If there's the idea of hesitation or the presence of drugs, alcohol, lack of consent, if they aren't old enough, which in the UK is 16, um, or if you're plying them, um, coercing them, in other words, to have sex, uh, you're not being very aware of their sexual health. And that can, that's a um, prosecutable offense. So um, not to mention, more importantly, it's, it's not good. It's not nice to people. Um, it can be, you know, really impactful on people. So those are ways to be, you know, aware of your of your sexual health. Um, yeah, I, you know, I know sometimes it can be quite serious too. But there is the happy side of sex, isn't there? That that, um, oh, yeah, awareness very much can be about pleasure and watching the signs, um, reading up and 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 talking with your partner about what feels good for them is great. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people don't know if you hold up two fingers right that's roughly the size of the human clitoris it goes really far up into your body so there are loads of of, of uh, resources as well as how do i make someone else feel good um this is a big question on on the internet is i can't get my partner to feel good and and that's a big troubling thing too for people and actually you know that can be very personal you can talk with that person and and build a space of trust where you know, should we try this? Would you like this? And and giving things a go. Um, those are good ways to be aware of your sexual health as well. Lots of fun things out there that you that you and your partner might might like to try. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, good. yeah it's, it's about talking about it, really. Yeah. Um, so is it true that not all STI show symptoms? Event HIV. What are the common STI and what are some of the common symptoms? Yeah, so so in recent years in sexual health, we've kind of moved away from the whole symptomology thing. Actually, it's a really cool thing that you've asked this question following that last one. It's about awareness of your body more, right? Like, is this off for me is a really good question. Um, traditionally, something that might feel off if you're noticing um, an STI might be discharge. That's a funny color or smell. Um, mm -hmm. It might be the presence of kind of like soreness. Um, really, those things actually can't be relied on very well, as you said, because 85% uh, of STIs are asymptomatic. So what you want to be doing instead is just routinely be getting tested. So that means between partners, between every new sexual partner, getting tested for STIs or what we call an MOT. For those of us from outside the UK, an MOT is... Gosh, I don't actually even know what it stands for, but it's what people get done once a year on their their car. It's like a it's like a routine checkup essentially. There is there there are spaces. Uh, they're called testing windows. So you also can't detect sometimes the presence of an STI immediately. Um, more often than not, you can't actually. To be fair, um, so you want to wait uh, up to two weeks to detect chlamydia and gonorrhea. 45 to 90 days for HIV and 12 weeks for syphilis 
And if you don't have that memorized, that's totally fine. You can just Google it because even sexual health educators, sometimes we have to put that on a slide to remember. So you could just Google it and your local clinicians will know as well. But the the upshot is probably about two weeks after your after sex with a partner, just get tested um, and have that communication with your next partner as well. Be asking things like, okay, um, I visited Victoria Health Center um, two weeks ago and all my tests were negative. Boom, that's a great conversation starter. And it's not its not kind of intrusive. Uh, it's, you obviously want them to answer. So, you, so then you say, so what about you? And if they're unwilling to give you that information, you can decide for yourself, you know, maybe if they're not willing to tell me what their testing history is, yeah. um, where, what do I want to do with my health? Um, maybe for me, I don't want to have sex if they don't know what their, you know, the last time they've been tested are. Yeah. That's not a risk I want to make with my health, you know? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it seems testing is really important. So it's regarding testing, how important it is to get tested as soon as possible. So what can we do to help increase awareness of STI testing? Mm -hmm. Also, do home test kits cover all the STIs? Right. So... Uh, to raise awareness of testing, I really think that partner communication is a great way to do it. And this is the idea of like normalize. And I, I know I sound probably old to some freshmen because I've become a bit of a cliche now, like normalize testing, normalize testing, normalize testing. I, I'm sure we don't even make Instagram posts like that anymore. Um, but I do say normalize, normalize testing in your conversations with people. Um, yeah. Make sure, make sure to ask uh, your partners, have have you been tested? And in conversations with your friends, oh, I'm going to get tested. Uh, do you want to come along? Shall we book too? It's, I mean, why not? Um, so definitely making sure that we're, we're asking folks. And then I do think this SH24 has really facilitated um, getting testing to your door. I, I, you know, something that I think is really great too. If you are absolutely so bashful, which you really don't have to be, again, all these clinicians are super happy to meet you. But if you are still really bashful, you can even anonymously um, have these tests shipped to you. Um, those are, and when I'm saying tests, actually SH24 offers a lot of services. I brought it up for myself because it's it's changed quite rapidly and I knew I'd forget what they all were. So here I have it in front of me. STI testing kits. Um, yes, it does cover all. They'll ask you a number of questions that help um, them identify which ones to send you. Um, you, dep depending on the type of sex that you have or the category of, of risk that you fall under, they may not send you all types of testing kits. For example, HIV, maybe not. Um, that one's, I think, the, the one that they send out um, they tend to be kind of like uh, based on on what categories you might fall into. They can send out the contraceptive pill. They can send out, like I said, emergency contraception, um, genital wart topical treatment, and genital herpes treatments. So, so a lot of these services you can get without ever having to cross a threshold. You know, um, they do recommend. Obviously, if you get a positive test back, they do recommend you. They will have you come in and set up an appointment for you to come in. Um, and that's just so you know how to manage your health. Um, by then also, that's what you want to do. You'll probably want to see a friendly face to tell you all of um, what the next steps are. So, yeah. 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 So for some going to a STI clinic can be a very scary thing. I suppose in having an STI can have an impact on, you know, our mental health. What can you expect when getting support and advice? Mm. 
I've been very lucky in my professional career and in my research to meet a ton of really dedicated folks. And people get into this field because, well, first of all, it's terribly interesting. I, I Maybe I'm biased, but it's terribly interesting. Um, and it's rather a fun topic, actually. And we're all very much uh, nerds who really care about uh, just people having um, healthy lifestyles. So people are really glad when you cross that threshold and really happy to see you. Um, to be fair, uh, it can be sometimes uh, a scary situation or you might be afraid when you're um, awaiting results. And I'd say a lot of times people feel that way when they're getting tested for HIV because this one, there's um, a history around it that feels um, that's been kind of steeped in, in well, misinformation and um, stigma. And, and there's been some great media recently that, that have explored that. But um, if you feel a little bit afraid, I know Terrence Higgins Trust, they have a hotline that anyone can call. Young people, uh, you know, uh, people of any age can call um, and they can, you can have support when you are facing the prospect of a... Um, positive or a negative HIV test. And, and these are things that, uh, for those who don't know, Terrence Higgins Trust is a uh, sexual health charity that specifically focuses on HIV and AIDS. Um, and we call it now just, we talk about HIV actually particularly um, because uh, AIDS is basically when your immune system after having the virus uh, just becomes compromised. Um, and a lot of people never develop AIDS, actually. Those people who develop AIDS are in the in the minority because care is so good. I'll just throw one more little um, tidbit at you re re revolving this, because actually I work for Terrence Higgins Trust, full disclosure. <laughs> um, so I have, I have a bit of information on this. Um, yeah. In fact, I've got some pamphlets in my closet. If this was a visual format, I might bring them out. Um, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I thought it might be interesting for folks that in the UK, mm -hmm. um, modernly, people with HIV actually on average tend to outlive people without HIV. And that's because the care is so good modern day, you guys, really. Um, you are having your health looked at. You are talking to people who are HIV specialists all day long. I happen to work with two in my research who are fabulous. Um, and these people are are totally dedicated and into what they do. So there's, you know, every chance that you are getting to talk to someone who really, you are, there's every chance you're meeting with people who are completely dedicated to your care and your happiness. But yeah, absolutely. It can feel a little bit scary, but these folks are ready for it. So I touched on sexual habits earlier. Um, so a student come to UK university from all over the world. So what advice would you give to international students from relations to having safe sex? A bit um, about, you know, there is a culture differences, are, I believe, when it's come to sex. So what do you think? Mm. Yeah, Zara, actually, I would love to hear more about some of your findings in terms of cultural differences, which my research so far hasn't actually had the opportunity to touch on. Um, mine's mostly looked at sort of the immigration experience as a as a almost logistical barrier um, mm. because you're becoming, uh, you know, you're having to transition into a completely new uh, almost bureaucratic sometimes system. Uh, maybe there'll be 
some focusing in on cultural differences later in my research, but actually I was really curious what, what you found. Um, so it, when it's come to cultural discipline, there is a lot like, you know, barriers, I believe. Um, so when it's come to, you know, sexual education, it's not that pop popular to like, for example, to where I come from, Arab cultures, they tend to have a lot, a huge stigma around that when it's come to talk about sex. So I believe there is like a huge gap between, you know, the UK here and um, where these international students come from, especially from the East Mid East Midland. They seems to be, there is a gap when it's come to sex education and they feel like, you know, around the stigma around it to talk about it. Um, so that's what I can find so far. Okay, so there tends so potentially with um, cultures that feel like more conservative and coming from the states, sometimes there are very conservative cultures as well. So those those folks might find it quite hard to ever come up and speak up about what their needs are. Is yeah, that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't don't really if they, they have any issue or problem, they tend not to speak about it and you know just leave it really without seeking any help because that stigma around them. Mm, mm. Yeah. Have you found any any research that kind of suggests what some solutions might be or how to reach students who are finding that finding cultural barriers to services? I would say like, you know, just sharing events, workshops, try, you know, social media is the best way to reach students. Right. So, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, where you can, you know, do events with the simple stuff, you know, where you can easy to talk and easy to speak with, you know, the service to seek help, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So some so uh, education and services that maybe we're coming to them, right? We're finding them so they don't have to come find us, that type of thing. Yes. Yeah. So you have to find them instead. They find you because. It'll be hard for them, you know, to, to engage and, and get in and, and seek help because, as I said, that stigma around, it makes them feel really shy and embarrassed to, to speak about. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. I know you've got um, a couple weeks left on compiling these findings. and Your research sounds really cool. I am definitely keeping my ear to the ground on that. It will certainly be annoying you before the end of your research <laughs> to hear more. Well, next week it's going to be my last week, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's it's obviously been a huge, um, a huge delight that NTU's been so paid so much attention to international students and their health, and particularly sexual health, because it can. There are so many different invisible barriers. Yes, behind access, right, for international students to sexual health. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will just say because. I don't know how much more time we have, um, but I did want to actually bring up something that I know we were going to potentially touch on, which um, around STIs and HIV um, is while STIs tend to be on the rise um, and then potentially with COVID actually maybe again on the fall, this is, it, there, are, there are contradictory studies actually. Um, but one thing that is for certain is that HIV saw a massive decrease in the past couple of years, and that is because of uh, the recent trials of uh, PrEP. So PrEP is a, a pre-exposure prophylactic. So for those people who don't know, uh, PrEP is a medication that you can take um, 
pretty much uh, once a day. There are other ways of taking it as well um, that are a little, uh, I think for the time being, they, they mainly ex ex have people take it once a day. It's almost like this is a funny way maybe to describe it, but it's almost like taking the birth control pill, but of HIV. So you prevent yourself actually from getting HIV. What it does is it, it coats the receptors uh, the, that might otherwise take on the virus and it makes it so this virus can't um, attach and replicate. So even if you're exposed to HIV, um, it can't take hold essentially. So that's really helpful um, for people who are in high risk groups. So for people who um, particularly are going to be having lots of group sex or, um, you know, tend to um, otherwise fall into a demographic that, um, or have a partner who's HIV positive. This is a great um, invention. There's also with the increase of testing, which we've been talking about a lot today, people are becoming more aware of their status sooner. So I think SH24 is awesome because people are learning a lot more quickly. What is my HIV status? Um, they can send you uh, basically what's a finger prick test through SH24. And what, what that does is you kind of just do a tiny little nick on your finger and send that off. Um, and that's within, you know, kind of 45 days. That's when you want to be, be doing that. Um, and then you'll also do another test. Um, if there's a positive, even if it's potentially a false positive, they'll have you come in and do uh, more extensive blood work as well um, at either juncture. And basically being aware of your status means that you can start taking um, basically drugs that help. It's called Truvada. Yeah. So basically it helps keep the presence of the virus so low that it's actually undetectable. So people who do get HIV, their lives can quite honestly quite look very similar, almost exactly the same to people who don't, who've never had an HIV positive diagnosis because the presence of the virus will get so low that it doesn't affect, it doesn't have any symptoms, um, except for maybe, you know, adjusting to the pill if you're a first time user. Um, that includes things like you normally get with any sort of new medications, kind of like an upset tummy, but actually the, the side effects are super low and then you get used to it and it's whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially um, people are able to take uh, these pills and, and their, their presence of the virus becomes so low it's undetectable. This is a cool um, thing that recently has been called U equals U. So um, if you can't uh, be detected, you can't transmit the virus. So it, it basically, uh, the ways of preventing uh, the proliferation of HIV are PrEP, which you can take to prevent getting it. You can take PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis, uh, which if you've been exposed to the virus and you weren't already on PrEP, you can take basically a high dose of uh, this medication and it'll prevent the virus from taking hold again. Um, or you can U equals U. If you've already been uh, diagnosed with HIV, be taking medication that makes it so that there's basically no detectable presence of the virus within your body. Mm, that seems really helpful. Um, right. Yeah, you've mentioned that. Oh. So, so dating app seems to be very, very popular with the students. Mm, so yeah. suggested that around 75% from age 18 to 24, they use Tinder. So what advice would you, yeah, it's very popular. What advice would you give to students for staying safe when using mm -hmm. a dating app? 
Right on. Okay. So dating apps are, yeah, you're right. They're very popular right now. And that I think maybe as a modern young folk, I think that's actually quite a cool thing. If I'm honest with you, I think it's, I think uh, with sex and relationships moving online, I think you get a similar set of wonderful things that come out of it. There are a lot of great new ways to meet people in a way that feels like if anything, sometimes can feel safer because you're like, I don't have to meet this person in person. Um, people who would be like, I would never feel comfortable with someone like buying me a drink in a bar, but if I can approach them, you know, at a distance and maybe weed people out like who I know it's not going to work out and I don't have to sit there and have like, an awkward conversation or have to reject someone face to face. That can feel a lot. That can feel a lot safer. And all the same, um, it also brings a lot of the, you know, negatives to sex and relationships online. Um, I wonder if even calling it sex is, is the wrong thing, because when I'm talking about kind of what the negatives are, obviously a lot of times people are worried about their cybersecurity here um, or the proliferation of really private images. And, you know, um, there is a law against proliferating, right? So reproducing, sharing images that are private of somebody. Um, that is against the law. Uh, I'll just say that right now. So this is a law that was once called revenge porn, anti-revenge porn laws. Um, obviously, we don't use that term anymore. It's antiquated now. Um, it used to be because people would upload uh, images of, I guess, ex-partners um, to a, a, a website with that name. And um, so these days, the association with with that name actually isn't appropriate anymore. But so if you've sent someone a picture and they've shared that, you can report that to the police. Um, and there are also um, other specialist places you can report that as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'll have uh, Paul put some of the links to those resources in, but those can be taken off the internet um, through UK laws and through uh, nonprofit charities who work on that type of thing. Um, it's never appropriate, obviously, to share a private image that was, you know, shared with you, whether it's just, I, well, I shouldn't even say just, it sh it's not appropriate, right? Um, yeah. We wouldn't do that if someone um, was naked in front of us, doesn't mean they want to be naked in front of everyone. So that's, that's what it is, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so we'll put some of those resources together and have them in, in, in associated with this. It's good that we, we yeah. yeah, there is a service out there which is can help you know to prevent all this um so yeah thank you very much um for today Chloe we you shared a lot of useful <laughs> dedication today and I've learned a lot actually and you know um so hopefully it'll be really useful for all the students to hear this podcast and yeah thank you again thank you very much if you want to say something else um that we'd like to share more Right on. Well, um, stay safe, folks. Um, uh, there will be some research upcoming, actually. So uh, keep an eye out, I suppose, especially if you're an international student who's heard this. Um, you might get an email somewhere down the line uh, to participate in some research. And if you do, that's great. Um, it'd be great to hear more about um, in both of our research, I think, about, you know, what are the experiences of international students in particular regard to sexual and reproductive health. But um, absolutely, I hope some of these little bits have been, you know, helpful to to some folks out there. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great chatting with you guys. I'm sure I've given Paul a big job in terms of editing. But it's been really fun chatting with you both. 
thank you for coming as well. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Lovely. Lovely. All right. Ciao, guys. Thank you. Best Thanks. of luck. <laughs> thank you.